Today we are talking about Chris Power, the founder of Hadrian Automation, uh, this very early stage startup founded about two years ago, maybe three years ago. Uh, and they've built these really, really large factories that they want to completely automate the manufacturing process for uh, aerospace parts. Uh, it's a really interesting company, very big problem to solve. And he's, uh, you know, hilariously the man who's the most obsessed with the Roman Empire. He named his company after Hadrian, who, of course, is the uh, Roman emperor, the builder. Um, good name for a startup. Um, but we're going to go through Chris's history. And there's a couple really interesting case studies because this is not the first time this has been tried. Um, obviously, manufacturing is a massive industry. It's just huge. Like we'll, we'll go into some of the numbers, but you know, it powers so much of the economy. Everything that needs to be, uh, you know, sent to space needs to be made. Everything that goes on a plane or goes in a rocket or is involved in a defense company, all these things need to be built, and they and they're built in, uh, you know, a very very fragmented manufacturing system that we have in the American economy, and then of course. There's a bunch of geopolitical uh, discussions around how American manufacturing has fallen behind. So this is an interesting story because it's such a such an early stage company, um, and they still have so far to go. But there are so many interesting breakout stories. Like we could spend the whole episode just talking about Hadrian the Builder and the history of Rome, <laughs> and we could also go really deep into the space race and how America won World War II with you know incredible manufacturing prowess, and then what's going on right now with China and and offshoring and uh, all sorts of sanctions and regulations. Um, but I'm going to try and keep this focused on Chris, the founder. So let's do the usual. We'll go through his timeline, his career, how he wound up here. You know, he has about, uh, I think he's raised over $100 million in a very short amount of time. And he's very well respected within the, you know, defense tech, hard tech community. And it's interesting to see his path to building kind of this you know, really, really fast growing company where they've hired a ton of people, built really big factories, and uh, he, he's just a great storyteller. So um, I'm actually going to the facility tomorrow to interview him and his team. We're gonna be doing a video on, on the whole company, um, but I wanted to get this out as kind of some backstory. So I, I went back and I read all the blog posts, listened to all the podcasts, read all of his old tweets, <laughs> and some of which are really funny. Um, so we'll go through this, uh, you know, like we usually do. So he, uh, he must be right around my age, like born in 1990, graduated high school in 2008. Uh, he's from Australia, which is kind of interesting. Obviously, Australia is like a huge partner to the United States, um, but he's like on stage at all these American dynamism events now, and he's Australian. Um, but clearly, he cares about like the Western order and like the and the importance of democracy globally. And uh, Australia is obviously an incredible partner to the United States in, in all things defense. And so um, he goes to a university in Australia that I hadn't heard of, Monash University, studies accounting and tax law. <laughs> it's pretty boring, but uh, you'll see like he's in kind of the sexiest industry, this defense industry, uh, but he's doing like the most boring thing. And then even within the specific approach that he's taking to building this factory, he's also doing a bunch of these like really boring things. But I think dialing in the level of boredom is actually kind of important here. And we'll go into one of the companies that tried to take like a sexier approach and it kind of didn't work out. Um, so it's interesting. So after graduating, he goes to work for this retail company doing kind of like online. It seems like it's a really small group of people. There's like two directors 
acres owners and he kind of comes in as this like product manager, general manager. Uh, interestingly, one of the things that they sell is like an online power tools company, uh, is online power tools. And it seems very much like eBay, drop shipping, you know, this is 2011, the era where you could just kind of make money selling anything online. Um, but he's not there for very long. Uh, pretty quickly he moves to a bigger a bigger e-commerce player called Catch of the Day, which is an Amazon competitor. I, I hadn't heard of it, but uh, obviously it's really hard to compete with Amazon in the long term. But in the small market that Australia was in e-commerce in 2014, um, seemed like they had some success and he got some you know, good experience there. And uh, that company was eventually like rolled into West Farmers Limited, which is like this massive $40 billion Australian conglomerate that I didn't even know existed. Um, <laughs> but Catch Group was like kind of a very small organization, $230 million I think was like the acquisition price for that company. Um, but, uh, you know, I mentioned I went back and looked at Chris's old tweets and you can kind of see him transform from, you know, he's just probably just trying to make ends meet, like learn learning business skills, working for all these e-commerce companies. But back in 2014, SpaceX is, is you know, doing all these incredible things. And he, he's, it looks like he's basically a SpaceX fanboy. I mean, who wasn't? I, I certainly was. So he's following all the launches and tracking progress. And you can just tell that he wants to have an impact here, but he's just, you know, halfway around the world and doesn't really have a way to break into that industry. Um, there's actually a really hilarious crossover where he, he like posted about some of the content market I did at my first company where uh, we had our CEO, he basically gave up alternating current, meaning he would live off the grid, but in the city. So he was living in this like high rise apartment, but he bought a solar panel and used like batteries to power everything. It was just like a brutal experience, but it was very a very interesting exploration of like how the grid works, how power is generated. Uh, and it was this great marketing stunt for, for Soylent. And um, we'll see kind of later that like, obviously Chris isn't doing like marketing stunts, but he understands how to tell stories. And, and this is really, really important in early stage startup when you're really small because you just don't have that much to talk about. And you'll see this when we go through Hadrian, like the actual story of the company, it's just only a few years old. So there aren't these crazy hurdles and crazy milestones and like crazy battles where the company's going public and then they're you know getting sued. Like we've gone through the Palantir story and it's just like, oh, they sued the government. They're around for 20 years. Then they go public. Like there's so much there. Then the AI boom happens. And with a two-year-old company, you just don't have that. But importantly, Chris, is really good at at jumping from okay maybe there isn't an hour of content about Hadrian to talk about yet and he recognizes that and so instead he's really really sharp on the history of manufacturing what's going on geopolitically even going back to the Roman Empire and so all of those things are interesting things to talk about and you don't want to be the you know the early stage CEO who's just like yep we're gonna you know solve this problem and it's a big market and this is five minutes into this interview. I've said everything that I know. You need a couple like really good stories. And so he has a bunch of those. Um, and <laughs> that the, the, the I went back and looked at the, the blog post where Rob, my co-founder, lived you know, off of alternating current. And so he's living on the solar panel. And the top comment is just, man, it must be exhausting to be around you which I think is just so funny because he's just always doing these like crazy stunts. Um, but yeah, good, good lesson there in like storytelling. Um, and another story that 
Chris is obsessed with and has posted about like constantly is this story of in defense of the sterling, which I hadn't really heard about. It's, it was mentioned in this book, Business Adventures, and it talks about the shift in global reserve currency that happened post-World War II. This is another one of those like historical stories that Chris can tell and everyone can learn from. And then we can, you can see how this story might make what Hadrian's doing more important. So the defense of the sterling, the, the story here is basically that um, the, the British pound sterling was the global reserve currency before World War II. It was not the dollar. And even though the UK won the war, like the Allies beat the Nazis, um, the UK struggled and was bombed, obviously. They were, they were really, really on the front lines, literally. Um, and they needed the United States to help. And so obviously the United States scaled up a bunch of manufacturing, was able to build a ton of tanks and, and planes and everything that you needed to win the war. We all know the history of World War II. Um, but, but the consequence of that was that the US dollar became the reserve currency and the British Empire started declining. And so the pound became the target of speculative attacks. And there's a bunch of famous examples of this where people were shorting the pound and trying to kind of break what the British government was doing. And the British government took a series of measures to fight back and try and maintain the, the value of their currency. So they you know, worked with the interest rate, they sold gold, they, seek to, uh, they sought assistance from other central banks uh, to defend the pound's value. Um, but despite all those efforts, um, the pound did eventually have to be devalued in 1967. Um, and it just kind of shows like the complexity of managing national currencies in a globalized economy. And the and, and obviously like the reason that Chris is so focused on this is because he's very worried about the US dollar no longer being the reserve currency. And there's all these estimates that, you know, if the if the if the yuan becomes the reserve currency and, and the dollar is no longer the global reserve currency, it would take like ten percent off GDP or twenty percent on GDP. It would be like very, very bad. Obviously it's a huge advantage to have your currency be the uh, the the gold standard internationally, um, and so he's very he's very worried about that, and and I think that that's a lot of the motivation for Hadrian is to help maintain uh, the democratic order and help help support the United States. Um, and uh, you know I, I mentioned he's he was like obsessed with SpaceX at this time and. Um, he was also very, very obsessed with going to the moon again, which was very cool and I love to see because I'm a big proponent of expanding to the moon and landing on the moon. Obviously, there's a ton of focus on Mars because that's what will really make humanity multi-planetary, but I don't see a world where we get to Mars without really building out the moon as a major staging ground for everything that happens. Like, if you just think about going to Mars, you know, it takes months instead of days and once you get there, getting back is extremely difficult. You have to bring a rocket that has enough fuel to get, get, get you back and all the infrastructure there. Whereas we've sent people to the moon, we brought them back. And you could imagine if you went to a moon base and something bad happens, you could just like hop in a capsule and you know, the moon is always facing the earth. So you're always, your trajectory is always locked. You might land in a weird place, but at least you got off and got out of danger. Whereas, you know, on, on Mars, you can wind up in a, you know, a situation like in the Martian where, you know, you have to wait months for someone to come. It's very complicated. Um, and so I, I personally think the moon is, is, is very, very important. And, uh, and so he's really excited about Elon supporting it. And then uh, Mike Pence and the Trump administration 
team up with NASA to announce a plan. And now it's actually happening and SpaceX, I believe has been chosen as like the partner to make that happen. So they're going to use the, the latest Starship to actually deliver astronauts to the moon, which would be super, super cool. And this kind of under, underlies the, the narrative around Hadrian, which is that, you know, the, the space industry is growing very quickly and we're in this kind of space race 2.0, which we'll, we'll go into a little bit later, but essentially, um, you know, having a presence in space, having a functional space industry is, is very key to the geopolitical order. And it's obviously just a massive market. Uh, SpaceX has also solved a bunch of the really hard problems. And this is obviously just gonna be a massively growing area over the next 20 years. Um, and it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting because you could imagine that, you know, I remember there was somebody in Silicon Valley like 10 years ago that tried to build like a moon base company. And it was obviously just way, way too early because the, the launch capability wasn't there at all. But you can see with the trajectory of SpaceX that like maybe we're getting close to someone maybe someone should go and start thinking about that more seriously. I'm sure there's some entrepreneurs that are actively thinking about that. But, you know, there obviously needs to be a fit between the founder's skill sets and the actual opportunity. So in order to build a moon base, you probably have to be, you know, basically a rocket scientist. And, and that's not Chris, like Chris is this, you know, he has a business background, he is working in e commerce, and he wants to get more experience and continue to grow the uh, just his business, his business acumen. And so he in 2015, he goes to work for this company Ento, which is a workforce scheduling software company. And it's very interesting, because I'm, I'm also I just interviewed Parker Conrad, the subject of the last episode. Um, and uh, everything that rippling is doing is kind of like, uh, very disruptive to what Ento did. So uh, we'll, we'll go through Chris's experience at Ento. So it's 2015 and Ento, it, it's basically just a web app, like they call it a platform, but you can't really build anything on it. But basically um, there's, you know, the businesses will use this software to plan and allocate employee shifts. So if you're running a factory, for example, and you need to have a bunch of workers show up at a certain amount of time, we also saw this with Traba, um, you'll need to allocate employee shifts and you have to optimize around preferences and availability to make sure workers get shifts and the business actually gets all the work done. So you might, you know, SpaceX order comes in, you need to move mountains to, to actually get all the workers there to, to ship that out on time. And so they built like this time and attendance management platform where employees would clock in, you know, you, you've seen like the old punch cards. This is kind of like a replacement for that. You have an app and then uh, the employees can be paid correctly for their time. And then while Chris was there, he also built out some like it, quote unquote artificial intelligence stuff to like forecast staffing needs. I'm sure it was a very basic like like linear regression at the time, but still it was like he was thinking about advancing the technology as much as possible. Um, so helping the company predict when business might be slow or busy, uh, what employees would be available and then match them, schedule them and then get them paid. Um, and so there's this very interesting thing where the company, they had raised a seed round and, um, and Chris joins as I think employee number three or four um, and they're growing, but it is this like point solution. Whereas Rippling takes this like compound startup approach where they build all the different products that 
any HR team needs to work with. So not just time and attendance, but also payroll, also benefits, also you know uh, compliance and reporting, all these different things. And that was probably the, the 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 rippling approach is probably the right one, at least for the U.S. In Australia, something kind of interesting winds up developing, which is that Ento. This is after Chris leaves, but Ento wound up getting acquired by a private equity backed roll up this company called human force which raised in 2015 in 2019 raised 15 million dollars from excel kkr so excel's the venture capital firm in silicon valley but they have this partnership with kkr to do private equity i think mostly internationally um but human force in 2020 uh, in 2022, they raised this big round and they start rolling up all these different HR software companies, which is very interesting because that's kind of, I asked a lot of the Rippling guys, like, why why does the private equity approach not work here? And they were pretty clear that there were some really, really pro problematic um, uh, just technical issues that come up from buying a lot of different products and trying to kind of duct tape them together. And the the compound startup approach would be the right one where they get the data model right about the employee and then they build products on top of that. And so Rippling has acquired companies, but they've never acquired products that then they just like integrated. They've done basically aqua hires. Um, but I guess in Australia, um, these guys, Human Force, are trying to do a roll-up, and who knows if it'll work, but uh, it was kind of interesting because this was like the first taste, I think, that Chris saw that, okay, uh, you know, the, the roll-ups are happening in this particular space, and later on in the story, he gets, uh, he gets interested in roll-ups and kind of goes down that, and we'll, we'll explore how private equity-backed roll-ups relate to the manufacturing space in a bit. Um, so yeah, Chris was there, employee number four, seed round, um, and you know his job is to sell the product. He's basically the sales guy. And so he scales revenue 10x, the valuation goes up 10x, he builds out that AI scheduling tool, but eventually he needs to find the next thing. He, he, he's gotta go bigger and he's gotta get closer to the problem because they're building this very abstract software solution. It's very narrow and it's not really having like an unlimited upside power law type outcome. So he, he has this six month transition where he finds a new chief revenue officer to take to take over and um, and it's kind of unclear exactly, I need to ask him like why he left specifically, um, but I can imagine that it's just kind of like the visibility into where the market was developing. Um, but Ento did you know pretty well, 10,000 companies used it, more than 100,000 employees were on, were on board. Um, but you know, Chris is onto the kind of the next thing. So he joined that in 2015, and then in 2018 he moves to the United States, and he goes all in on the moon, which I love. <laughs> so he joins this nonprofit called the Open Lunar Foundation, and it seemed like he basically just became obsessed with SpaceX and the moon, which I love. Um, and he was like an advisor contributor to this nonprofit, um, and the and the nonprofit was focused on settling the moon and. So they operated, it seems kind of like some of these AI nonprofits, um, and they focused on three things like uh, technical standards, stewardship, and shared infrastructure. So they wanted to advocate for, um, you know, not like overdeveloping the moon, making sure that there's like, you know, interoperability between the systems that people put up on the moon. Very forward thinking, but probably a good idea. Um, and just in general, you know, I, I like to joke that like it would be cool if America just like owned the moon and moon and the moon should be a state. Um, but realistically, like we have a treaty in place and like we don't want war. And so we should be, you know, developing the moon responsibly. And and that was kind of the 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 goal of the Open Lunar Foundation while Chris uh, 
worked that worked there. Um, and so in 2019, he's established in the United States and is ready to kind of go bigger. And this is where he starts thinking about how can he actually have an impact on the manufacturing supply chain. And so he, before, Hadrian is obviously like a tech startup. They're raising money and building everything kind of from scratch, buying, buying equipment, building out factories. But before he did that, he thought that a private equity roll-up style approach would actually be the correct model. And so he starts this private equity fund called ADSC to target strategic manufacturing. And so um, they're like this mid-market acquisition fund. He raises some money and, and uh, he doesn't, like the money doesn't go into his bank account. It's more like these institutions and high net worth individuals have kind of earmarked like, hey, when you buy, when you find all the companies that you wanna buy, we'll take a look at them and then we will fund those acquisitions and then you can start, you can start rolling them up um, but he ultimately shut it down. He, he only did it for about a year because then he realized that the startup model would be more appropriate. And this is something that you know we're going to debate about, and I guess we'll we'll, we'll see because there in this industry there have been successful roll-ups, there have been unsuccessful startup approaches. There's a lot of different um, approaches that can work, and uh, his bet is basically that in 2020, in you know in in the modern era the startup model is the correct one. And so 2020 hits, COVID obviously hits, and he has this great tweet where on March 6th, this is like before the, the chaos had really unfolded, he tweets, on March 6th, he tweets, the markets are gonna shit themselves completely next Friday when US testing numbers jump, batten down the hatches, folks. This is gonna be a total shit show. And when he tweeted it, the S&P 500 was at, uh, 2,900, and two weeks later it was at 2,300. <laughs> it like dropped a ton. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, I love this. Uh, obviously, a great call. And if you were following like tech Twitter and what Balaji was saying and what the what, what Andreessen was doing, like it, it it was pretty clear that this was going to be a really big deal. Um, but a lot of people weren't internalizing yet, surprisingly. Um, but my knock on this is that I, I think he, he tends to be a bit of a financial doomer. Like, he, you know from the whole Sterling story, like he's very worried about the US losing its status as a global reserve currency. And so he's tweeted, you know, one trillion in repo and not quantitative easing. It's gonna be, it's not going to work. The Fed is done. You know, he's, he's definitely worried about US financial collapse. And a lot of people are, a lot of really smart people are. Bology tweets about it all the time. Um, but I think I, I think this might be a case where you know like the economists tend to predict like nine out of the last two recessions. Um, but it doesn't matter because like clearly there is a problem. Everyone everyone knows that like the the, the federal government has has issues and the Fed also has issues. Um, and and it's a very motivating force because like Hadrian and what he's working on is like a 10, 20, 30 year timeline. And clearly there are there are major, major problems in the supply chain, major problems in manufacturing. And um, whether, you know, whether the US, you know, dollar devalues in, you know, the next year or something, it, it doesn't really matter. He, he still needs to do the work that he needs to do. Um, and so in April of 2020, you know, peak COVID, um, we're finally in it. Mark Andreessen posts that essay, it's time to build, kind of a call for people to get aggressive. And it feels like Chris took that, took that article to heart because he starts Hadrian 
in November, uh, like just a couple months later. And he was clearly already thinking about it. Um, it's unclear if it was like, oh, he read that essay and was literally inspired. Um, but it was, but it was obvious that the it's time to build essay encouraged a lot of people to go and try ambitious things and start really bold companies. And uh, I think that's a really, really positive effect from from that type of writing, just kind of giving people the. Um, the the little push that they need to go and do ambitious things and of course like a couple of years later Andreessen invests in Hadrian and uh, you know it's it's kind of a full circle thing I actually I ran into both of these guys at a uh, at, at uh, LA Tech Week and uh, yeah it, it, it's cool I I don't think they'd met before the essay um, and now it's like Andreessen says it's time to build and Chris is the one like literally building. Um, so in November of 2020, Chris starts Hadrian and uh, you know he has this thesis that the American manufacturing supply chain is broken, but the PE model, like the private equity roll up approach will not work in 2020. And, but like we need to answer the question of why. And so there's this interesting balancing act that I think has happened with Hadrian where the, the, the media and the press really loves, and, and just tech in general loves these elegant solutions where you say, okay, we're gonna use software and we're gonna do complete automation, but you can't jump too far forward. Like you need to be on the right adoption curve and you need to be moving, like the technology needs to be ready to have an impact before you actually go and, and build the actual software. Um, and so I wanna analyze two different approaches. One is Transdime and the other is a company called Plethora. So Transdime was that private equity roll up. It was founded in 1993 with kind of the explicit mandate to roll up aerospace components companies. And so they, they focused on proprietary airplane parts um, with specifically significant aftermarket sales. And this is like key to their, to their business model. So um, once you sell something, let me find out what they actually, uh, give, me some, give, you, give you some examples of what they actually sell. Uh, aircraft seating systems, uh, gear pumps, landing gear systems, engine components. I always like to say that they, you know, if you, if you ever notice that on most planes, the seat belts are exactly the same, Transdime probably owns like the one company that makes airplane seat belts. And now the key is that when they, when they buy something like a landing gear system company, they, there's usually only like one in the space. So they base, even though they don't have a monopoly on the entire aircraft manufacturing supply chain industry, they have a monopoly on landing gear systems. And so they sell a landing gear system and then there are replacement parts, there's maintenance, repair and overhaul, there are upgrades. And so basically they're able to sell once and then make lots of money over time. And they have this very, very aggressive approach. So they're able to really squeeze out all the profit from that one sale. And this is, this is very key to the Transdime strategy. Um, and so they, the, you know, the, they're consolidating this fragmented supply chain and then they, they, so they're buying, you know, all these small aerospace manufacturers, usually just like kind of a mom and pop shop. Uh, you know, Chris likes to use the term Bob's machine shop for just like a guy with, you know, a, like a, a lathe or CNC or whatever. They, they have some machines and they can make some parts, but they're not really running as like an optimized, you know, scaled company. And so when Transdime comes in, they're leveraging economies of scale, buying things, you know, buying parts for raw materials across the entire organization. They're streamlining the operations. They're integrating best practices around like hiring and training into every acquired company. 
And they're crazy about selecting the right companies to acquire. And they're just like absolute machines at this because they're private equity guys. Uh, so they really focus on niche markets where there's lower competition and there's more pricing power. And then they also focus on that aftermarket potential and they really understand the product life cycle. Uh, it's basically like thinking about LTV. So they have an opportunity to raise prices, improve margins, maximize cash flow. And there's a great podcast with the, the, the team behind Transdime, some of the investors and, and, and the founder CEO. Um, it's called 50X. Uh, you should definitely go listen to it. It's fascinating. But it, I mean, listening to these guys talk, it's like a completely different language from what we speak in Silicon Valley. It's just like, it sounds like something out of like Harvard Business School, but and they're just saying like very basic things like, oh, well, we just raised our prices. And you'd think that there was something, you, you want there to be a secret. You want there to be, oh, well, they you know innovated and created some you know really proprietary thing. But really it's just, they show up every day. They run these businesses very efficiently. They only buy the good businesses. And they're just huge on operational efficiency. They're just private equity guys. And they've done really, really well. So over 30 years of like carefully analyzing and rolling up these companies, Transdime's worth $45 billion now. And I think it started with like a $100 million investment, maybe 200 mil. So phenomenal, phenomenal success story. Uh, it's a dominant player in aerospace. and But you'd never see the name because it's just like the seatbelt on the plane. Um, but this this aggressive acquisition and pricing strategies, um, they've also been like criticized for this because they're so good at it. Um, and uh, they, they face like allegation of excessively increasing the prices. There's this one example where they, <laughs> I thought that they sold a screw for like $200,000, but that's, it's not as aggressive as that. Um, they sold a motor rotor, which I don't even know what that is, but it's probably something in a, in a motor. They sold it to the Department of Defense for $5,474 each when that product or that, yeah, that, that particular product had been previously sold for $173. So they just did some analysis, found out that, that the demand and the problem that they were solving was worth $5,000 instead of 170 and they just raised their prices. So I think they got sued and I think they had to deal with some of that because, you know, if you wind up with a monopoly on motor rotors and, you know, the defense department just really needs what you make and you're the only one that can make it, then you can kind of charge whatever they can pay. And so that's what they did. Um, and of course, like they go back and forth and, you know, they might have to pay a settlement or they might have to lower their prices. Like these things are always just negotiations at the end of the day. But um, it's just like, it's just an insane story of just like ruthless efficiency. And uh, it's just an insane stock growth, uh, great business case study. And like every MBA like loves this story. Now on the other side, we have Plethora, which was a, uh, venture-backed startup actually backed by Founders Fund and Lux, who both put money in Hadrian, which is very, very interesting. But Plethora didn't really work out. So Plethora was started in like 2013, and I think it's fully shut down now, 2022, I think it says on Crunchbase. Um, but the goal was to create a fully automated factory. But I, from what I've seen and what I've read, like it sounds like they just went too deep into automation, and they got like really, really focused on automating the actual machines that do the fabrication of the parts. And they didn't take enough time to think about like everything else in the system that like gets a part made. And so this is where Chris's background in like, you know, scheduling workers <laughs> is relevant because you, you'll see with Hadrian that they're not just focused on like the, the, the time and cost savings from just running the actual machine more efficiently, that's sexy, but that's not the only source of cost and time when you're manufacturing aerospace parts. And so 
plethora basically took the opposite approach from Transdime. Instead of just acquiring all these companies, running them ruthlessly, like thinking about like these really boring businesses um, and then scaling them up, they really focused on software. And they never really developed just like, yeah, we have a machine shop and we can just make what you want. Um, so they, inter they, they, they built all this software that integrated with common uh, like CAD systems, computer-aided design. That's like where people like actually make the part in 3D software before it actually gets, um, you know, printed out or, or, or milled down or, or cut by the machines. Um, and, and, and the goal was good. Like it would give real-time feedback on manufacturability. So as you were designing the part in CAD, like you're the designer, you're sitting there um, kind of designing it in 3D, you can click the kind of like their plugin, I guess, or something like that, their software. And it will say, okay, yes, we think we can manufacture this or this would take this long or cost this much. Um, and the idea was to tighten that loop of design, prototype, and manufacturing. Um, but they went after, I think it initially they went after business to consumer, like consumer focused, like small, small parts that were, you know, low tolerances, just like, um, you know, kind of hobbyists almost, or like prototypes, as opposed to what Hadrian's focused on, which is uh, going right to SpaceX with the stuff that needs to be like perfect, but, in, but, but if they get it right, it's like really, really high volume. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of, it, they're like going straight to the enterprise essentially. Um, and so it seems like with Plethora, they struggled because like the, the operations involved in running an efficient machine shop are just, it's just hard. You need, you need a very unique team. And it's not your typical Silicon Valley team. It's not just a bunch of programmers who are gonna like sit there and think very deeply, like the PhDs. Um, it's not that crew. It's, it's guys who you know, have worked in machine shops, show up, just work through problems, and can get the job done. And the other thing is that like winning those big enterprise customers, if you want to do it all in software, you probably can, but you're gonna need to have this massive set of capabilities and because customers are going to want to come to you with any problem because you're their manufacturing partner. And that's not a problem when you just have a bunch of guys working with machines because any of these edge cases can be handled. But if you need the software to do it, you have to build this perfect system with every possible feature to deal with every edge case. And it's just very, very difficult. And so they, you know, the uh, plethora, I'm sure they tried a bunch of stuff. They probably pivoted a bunch and tried and worked very hard. I, I mean, they were at this for like a decade. Um, but, uh, and they, they, they tried, you know, to offer narrower scopes, but I, I don't think they ever really got traction. And so um, it was kind of like a big, a big learning lesson for Founders Fund, Lux, and obviously Chris. And so Hadrian's trying to split the difference. Like they want to focus on a more set, narrow set of products. Like I think Plethora did both plastic and metal. Hadrian's just focused on aluminum right now. And then they're going to go to harder materials like over time. And it's just this, it's just this question of like, you know, automation is sexy and it feels like, and, and there's a good reason because if you can create something that's fully automated, fully software, like you have very high margins. Um, and there's no, there's no, uh, you know, flexible cost with everything. It's just the fixed cost to build the software and get the machines. And then there's no, uh, there's no variable cost in, in actually running the factory. Whereas uh, Transdime has tons of variable cost. Every time someone, every, every time someone buys something, you know, like a human has to go make it. But the, but the, the Transdime guys have been very efficient on the operational side. They understand the business and they've scaled it. Um, and, uh, and Plethora basically never figured that out. And so, 
Hadrian is, is, is very, very focused on space and defense um, versus Transdime, which it, it seems like they're much more focused on like planes, which is also the aerospace industry, but it's a subset of that. And the reason for this is that uh, the, the market for space and defense is just booming. Um, there's some crazy stats here. I'm not sure how accurate some of these are, but in 2021, space companies received $14.5 billion in private investments. Obviously, there were a ton of SPACs, and then SpaceX has just been raising a lot of money, um, driving probably most of that. Um, in Q3 of 2022, $3.4 billion was invested in 79 space companies. I imagine there's a SpaceX round in there. Um, there's over 5,000 space companies in the United States, which is kind of unthinkable, you know, a few decades ago um, when space was not really privatized at all. Uh, the estimates to that the industry should surpass $1 trillion in annual revenue by 2040, up from $350 billion today. It's a pretty big growth. And then basically the U.S. space supply chain is, is outdated because since World War II, there hasn't been like an entirely redesign of the space supply chain. A lot of this, a lot of the aerospace supply chain is just built on what happened in America for the Apollo projects. Um, and so th at this point, there's 3,500 suppliers and that leads to long lead times and high costs. And then there's also this risk that, you know, the guy who's running Bob's machine shop retires. And when he does, he takes with him all of the, all of the knowledge about how to build a particular part. He just retires, shuts down. You know, this is like a cash flow business. He's not going to sell the business. He'll just kind of, uh, you know, sail off into the sunset with what he saved up. And the problem is, is that, you know, America's not bringing new talent into the manufacturing industry because it's not, it's not a really sexy career. People want to go to college and sit in front of a computer, I guess, instead of a, you know, a lathe or whatever. Um, and that's just like an American cultural thing. Um, but, you know, so Hadrian really focuses on these, uh, you know, precision components for aerospace and defense tech. Obviously, there's a lot of connections to other startups and founders fund companies to get, you know, warm intros from. They also hire from those folks. Um, and then they use, you know, autonomous so software powered factories to achieve ideally, you know, a 10x speed increase and 50% cost reduction. That's kind of the vision for the company. So let's go through the funding history. Um, March 2021. Delian Asperuhov at Founders Fund leads a seed round along with Lux. And then in 2020, later 2021, just six months later in October, Lux leads a Series A. And then another six months goes by, March 2022, and Dreesen comes in and, and expands the Series A. I, I think it's a Series A2, or, or maybe it's all part of one deal. Um, but very quickly, this company has, like I think, almost $100 million in funding. And... Um, on the one hand, it's like, okay, it's like a brand new company. It's kind of crazy, but um, they need to buy machines. Like they need to actually buy a factory and, and, and you know, to even test the idea, <laughs> like you need some money. Uh, this isn't something where they can just like spin up a prototype, go viral. It's a consumer app and it's going to be like Instagram. Uh, this is obviously a capital intensive industry and a capital intensive business, but all of that is, is you know, the counterbalancing effect here is that if they can do it, there's a lot of money flowing through the system. There's just a huge pool of capital because uh, manufacturing is just such a vital part of the economy. Um, and so, you know, the idea here is to build this industrial business integrated with software from the start um, and, you know, avoid that risk of industry know-how fading as the supply chain workforce ages out. And uh, so they hire a bunch of people, SpaceX, Tesla, Raytheon, Meta, you know, all the usual suspects. Um, 
And they really focus on the idea that the, the factory is the product. And if they can get the factory right and the factory can be running efficiently, then they can just build a lot of these factories. So they build factory one, which is 20,000 square feet. And it's basically just an R&D facility, but they're able to prove that they can deliver higher quality parts faster. Now, at the early stage, most of that probably wasn't done purely by automation. It was just a lot of people working really hard um, and a lot of experienced people just getting the job done. And then factory two was five five times larger, I think 100,000 square feet. And uh, just for reference, both of these are in Torrance, California, kind of right near SpaceX. Um, and, and so they can supply to, you know, various uh, aerospace and defense companies that are based in Southern California, where most of the industry activity is, or a lot of it is. Um, it'll probably expand to Starbase one day, Texas, got to get there. Um, and so the, the real value prop to the other, uh, you know, industry participants is cutting lead times. So for a lot of these products, it takes 20 weeks to get a product made once you've designed it and you're and you ship it off and then you want to integrate it and actually build the thing that you're working on uh that's just a really really long time so if hadrian can get that down to three weeks or something uh they'll have a ton of pricing power and so how how do they actually do that well the it, it's not it's not just you know like make the machine run faster with software or something or make the cuts into the aluminum more efficient um it's really ERP, which is extremely boring, but uh, but it's probably the right approach. So ERP stands for Enterprise Resource Planning. So in, in most companies, you use like NetSuite or something like that, or Oracle. And this kind of tracks what's going on in your business, it might track your inventory, but a, uh, a manufacturing plant needs an ERP software to see, okay, the customer paid for this, we need to start manufacturing this, do we have the raw materials, do we have the staffing, all of these things need to flow through a an ERP. And so they call their ERP software flow. And so the idea is like streamline production from order to fulfillment. And this will serve as the operating system for the factory floor. And since the factory is the product at the end of the day, if they can build a really strong operating system for it, then they can scale. And it's just a matter of, okay, we want to expand to Texas. Let's, you know, find some 100,000 square foot facility, buy a bunch of machines, put them in there, hire some people. And then we, you know, just spin up a new instance of our operating system, you know, log in and we're able to run immediately with all of the different guides. So this like this, the, the, the flow software, it will guide machinists with step-by-step -step instructions. And part of the long-term play is like, instead of the knowledge required to make a specific part being stuck in someone's head, it all goes into software, it gets documented, and then anyone can do that job. And so over the long-term, you can probably have, you can, you can bring more kind of, uh, you know, low-skilled, middle-skilled uh, folks and get them up to speed on how to, you know, actually make a part for a spaceship in like a few weeks of training as opposed to a lifetime of doing it, which is the way it works now. Um, so, you know, I think from a very early stage, Chris focused on finding the right blend of software and CNC machines and machinists and kind of knowing, okay, this is a problem that we should just throw people at. This is a problem that this is solved by this machine. So we need to go raise some money and buy that machine. And then this is actually a problem that can be solved with a software workflow. So, so it's basically like using just the right amount of software, which is a very tricky, uh, it, it's a very tricky message to get across. And it's not particularly sexy. Everyone wants the, the system that's just, you know, 
full software, you know, write some code, it's an API. Uh, that, that's the way the tech industry normally works and, and those solutions are always fun when you can find them, but it just doesn't work in every single case. And so in, you know, as of March, 2022, they're focused on aluminum based products, um, but they're gonna shift to harder metals. I think Inconel and then titanium, uh, you know, once they get the aluminum processing really up and running. Um, and then, you know, they, this ERP software that they built, the goal is, you know, not just to streamline how the parts get made, but also streamline the post-production. So engraving, paperwork, record keeping, pay, payments, all these different things um, that normally take extra time. And, you know, even if just like the paperwork and documentation, it takes, it adds an extra week. Well, if you can cut that down to a day, you know, that's going to all stack up. And then Elon's going to be a lot happier when he orders some, you know, SpaceX part and you deliver it earlier and then he gets stuff to Mars faster. Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of the basic value prop. So, you know, I mentioned that like the initial focus for customers was, you know, aerospace and defense companies, SpaceX, Anderil, um, ABL, Space Systems, um, these companies, and there's a ton of them now that, and they all need parts and they need parts fast. So just by moving from, you know, six to 12 weeks delivery to one to three weeks, even if it means just moving, moving mountains to get those customers onboarded, um, that's, that creates a lot of value and it creates a lot of demand for what Hadrian's building. Um, and so we can go through some of the historical context here. I mean, I mentioned it, like the U.S. space race in 1958, the moon landing in 69, and that's where a lot of this space infrastructure comes from. Like in 1966, the NASA budget was $50 billion adjusted for inflation, or 4.4% of the federal budget. Um, but then there was an evolution in the U.S. space industry. Um, we went from World War II aviation and military industrial complex to you know, some contractor consolidations, which we talked about in the context of Anderol, post-World War II, and in the 60s, and then in the 80s, um, large aerospace companies, they, they outsource their lower tier products, and so that like further expanded the supplier base, so there's even more suppliers, and that's how we got to the, the 3,000 suppliers for these things. Um, and, you know, the space industry, even in 2012, was worth over $60 billion, now it's even much, much bigger. Um, and all of that is predicated on this like very fragile supply chain that can't really flex up and down very easily. So, um, you know, the, the, the goal here is, is really, really big, but obviously it's a very, very long road. Um, and so, uh, I, I, this is a wild stat, but US aerospace and defense companies spend $15 per year on precision parts that have to be machined and, and are usually not done in-house. In, in so there's just this massive pool of dollars to go after, and that's why there's like so much funding flowing into Hadrian because if they win, they win massively, and that's why uh, we should be discussing it in the context of the power law um, because it's not, it's, it's, it's such an audacious vision. Um, and so, um, you know, NASA has struggled with this fragmented supplier base. We've seen it in all of the moon landing stuff. Um, there's thousands of different suppliers involved on every project, and this leads to cost overruns and quality uncertainties. Uh, I've been tracking the new moon landing constantly, and I really, I, I really want to be able to start doing like a countdown, like, oh, we're 500 days away from landing on the moon. But the actual date is slipping, and it's all over the place. And a lot of that has to do with the, with the supply chain comp uh, complexity. And so, you know, we, we, we've talked about that space industry uh, expanding to a trillion by 2040. And that number, it's so abstract. It's, it's, it's really crazy to believe. And it's, 
it's really hard to sit there and be like, yes, obviously, like, like on, on one hand, like you've watched the sci-fi movies and you see what's going on with SpaceX and it feels like a, like a foregone conclusion that, oh yeah, of course this is gonna work. But it's another thing to actually really, really internalize that and think about like, okay, yeah, like there could be a world in, maybe it's not two years, <laughs> maybe it's 20 years, but on the timeline of a new startup, which is like a 10, 20, 30 year project, like it's not unthinkable that the space industry will be absolutely massive and very, very serious. And, and, and that includes moon colonies and regular trips to Mars and all of these things. And there's gonna be so much that happens around that. Um, obviously Delian is the founder of Varda uh, and he wants to manufacture drugs in space and take, take advantage of, um, of zero gravity environments. And so there's all these different little trends and opportunities that will crop up as we march towards the space industry actually becoming like fully mature. A lot of the work is on satellite internet and, and photos and whatnot now, but uh, things are gonna get really, really crazy as we, as we move closer to that. And it's hard to, it's hard to fully internalize it, but you know, Delian clearly has because he's, he's basically tracked his entire career towards you know, the, the growth of the space industry. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I mentioned this a little bit, but it's, it, it's interesting to, to talk about Chris in the context of the power law, because normally, you know, we talk about people that have already built like absolutely massive companies, but with, with, with Chris, obviously he's super, super early still, but, you know, I think it's pretty clear that, that Hadrian, like if it works, it will be one of these power law companies that compounds and compounds and compounds. We saw that with Transdime 30 years ago, and there's still a ton of risk, but, and we're only a few years into the journey, and but these things take decades. And I just love exploring these like really, really big vision, even though there's obviously many hurdles ahead. And you know, I'm just excited to go hang out with him tomorrow and his team and hear some of the stories because he's he's just a great storyteller and can provide so much interesting historical context that we didn't even get into here. Um, but I'm excited to kind of hear the the latest on what he thinks we should be focused on obviously like there's the chips act what's going on in taiwan what's going on in ukraine and all these different supply chain issues that come down to at the end of the day someone you know manufacturing something and uh yeah it'll be a lot of fun so stay tuned for that um if you're not subscribed please do and uh i will be back with another episode in a few days thanks a lot